Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Now, if you guys aren't familiar with Exodus Trail Cameras, I'm going to recommend you go to their website. Tons of great information about their products, right? The cool part is, is they're turning four. They're having their fourth anniversary and to celebrate they are offering 25 percent off their exodus lift to their trek and their new solar panel and this is running from may 15th to may 28th um, they have a ton of great uh, features right i don't have enough time to share all of those features in this little time frame that i have to talk about it but here's what i'm going to tell you i have a camera off their very first run and it has not given me any problems at all, right? Put the SD card in, format the card, turn it on, and it takes pictures, period, right? And that's what we want trail cameras to do. They work every single time. Take advantage of this. 25% off. Go to their website, exodusoutdoorgear.com. Do some research about all the functionality of their cameras, right? You can take a look at their price. You can find the one that's right for you. You can enter the discount code YEAR4, Y-E-A-R, the number four, and save 25%. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting, the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet, Chasing Bear. And then it comes at me again. I can hear it's chasing it's coming at again. And this time the bear's head pops out of the brush right in front of me. And I am just screaming bloody murder. And I take my mag light and I just smack that thing right on the bridge of the nose. (laughs) (laughs) That mag light, like full hammer fist, like boom, right on the bridge, bridge of its nose. We just got back from a do it yourself 
hunt in Montana. Colby Moorhead, the Bear Tech, and I just got back from an 11-day expedition out west where we traveled from northwest Arkansas, trailered two mules all the way to western Montana, hunted. We're going to do a series of podcasts that we're going to call the Montana Tour. And while we were in route to and fro, we recorded five podcasts with five different people that I think everybody's going to find really interesting. We also are going to be having, obviously, a couple of podcasts about our hunt and some of the challenges that we found and also talking about exactly how everything went down. On this first Montana Tour episode, we are with my good friends Justin and Rebecca Spring near Missoula, Montana. Justin is the, is the director of records for the Boone and Crockett Club. And we talk about some history of the Boone and Crockett Club, which is incredible stuff that every hunter needs to know. It doesn't matter if you like scoring or not. It, you, when you listen to this podcast, you're going to be surprised at what you hear and what you learn. But we also talk with Justin and Rebecca about some of their uh, backcountry hunting for sure. They've done some incredible hunts, and they go into detail about their uh, caribou Alaskan drop camp hunt that they did this last fall, and among many other things. But this is the first of the series, really entertaining, really full of some great information, and you're going to enjoy it. The other podcasts that we did that are going to be coming as we stopped at the Best of the West headquarters in Cody, Wyoming, and did a great podcast with Jim Sessions and Jared Peterson about what they do and some of their hunting and the long-range guns that they shoot and optics. Then we went and met with Joe Condellis of the Western Bear Foundation. Had an incredible conversation with him as he gave us an update on the grizzly bear situation there in Wyoming and Montana and Idaho, but also talked about spring black bear in the West. Really cool. Then we dropped down to Denver and we met with Aaron Snyder went to Kafaru International and had about an hour and 20 minute long conversation with the infamous slash famous Aaron Snyder. Really neat, really fun, cool podcast that you're going to enjoy. Then we dove over in Denver as well and met with my good friend and Bear Hunting Magazine columnist and outdoor writer Brian Strickland. And Brian just last week killed a Boone Crockett bear in Manitoba, and uh, Brian transitioned to traditional archery over the last five years or so, and so we have a cool conversation with him about traditional archery, about bear hunting, about his history in the outdoor industry, and about the Boone and Crockett bear that he killed last week. You're going to enjoy this podcast with Justin Rebecca Spring, and I want to remind you of one thing. We set up a bear hunting magazine Patreon account. And again, this this Patreon is is for the podcast and our YouTube channel. That's the idea, is that uh, this is all free content and always will be, And but we wanted to find a way for people to give back. There's two ways that you can give back if you enjoy the content we're creating, is that you can subscribe to Bear Hunting Magazine, which that's an awesome thing to do. You're going to get something in your hands six times a year, a very high-quality publication, the only print bear hunting publication in the world. 
We've been in print for 20 years. So subscribe to Bear Hunting Magazine. If you're not interested in that and you want to you want to contribute to the cause, then you can check out Patreon and you understand how that goes. So hey, appreciate it. On to the Montana tour. You're gonna wanna listen to the end when Becca Spring tells about the time she punched a black bear in the face. I'm serious. You're gonna wanna hear it. Love. Welcome to the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I am with Colby Moorhead, the Bear Tech, and we are in near Missoula, Montana. Let's not give away our coordinates too specifically, but we're near Missoula, Montana. And Colby and I have been in and out of backcountry for the last six days. We've been on a bear hunt. There's going to be, we're going to be talking about that bear hunt in some podcasts, either before this podcast or after this podcast, not sure. But today we are going to have an awesome conversation with Justin and Rebecca Spring. Justin is the director of Big Game Records. Did I say it right? That's correct. For the Boone and Crockett Club. And Becca is his wife. And she has taught him everything that he knows about scoring animals, about conservation, about hunting, about being bad to the bone. Am I right? Someone's got to do it. Somebody's got to. <laughs> <laughs> no. So we're, uh, yeah, so on this podcast, I want to, if you, if you haven't met Justin, which you, Justin would have, he writes inside of the Boone and Crockett, the Boone and Crockett uh Ethic, there. Pope and Young Ethic. Boone and Crockett's fair chase. I'm sorry, Boone and Crockett. <laughs> edit that out. Mark that. Out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Boone and Crockett Fair Chase Magazine, and uh, so we're going to get into. Justin's going to talk about what he does. Going to talk some about the Boone and Crockett Club, and uh, and Becca is here to pretty much keep us in line and give us all the hunting tidbit wisdom that she has to offer. Becca has been like the the driving force of this hunt. We've been we've been you I mean you've been telling us pretty much where to go, what to do, how to do it. Is that right, Becca? I don't know. You guys dragged the critters all the way here and got on your feet and got out there. I just, <laughs> I just tried to provide a little food here and there maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we've been treated very well. Incredible, incredible hospitality. You guys Are, are you going to introduce the world to Becca Bars? Yes, for sure. That comes later. <laughs> okay, okay. But yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk about food. But no, let's just start off with an introduction. Justin, tell us, tell us, uh, tell us who you are. I know what you do, <laughs> but just any any way that you would describe yourself, go for it. Okay, so I started for uh, Boone and Crockett. Been about ten years now that I've worked for them. Um, people always ask me how I got the job. I actually drew a mountain goat tag in Oregon and. The vice president of records was at the orientation, so hunting got me into the job, and they haven't been able to get rid of me since. Um, first eight years, I did. I was the assistant director of records, which means basically I reviewed every entry that comes in from all over North America. So we have right. 1,440 measures, give or take now, and um, everything that they score is reviewed individually in Missoula. 
And so, like I said, the first eight years I was there, I was doing mainly review and then stepped into the director's role a couple of years ago. And um, now I, you know, as you said, write for the magazine, do the best I can to get the word out about Boone and Crockett, what we're doing, um, conservation, the, the success stories of, of everything, and, and even the, the negatives that we do see in our data set as well, some, some things that cause concern that... As conservationists and hunters, we, we want to keep our eye on and make sure that it's uh, nothing that we're doing wrong that's causing any any right. negativity. So, yeah. Um, so you got real good at math for about eight years, then, huh? <laughs> I get real good at using the computer. Yeah. Um, no, it it's uh, it's a lot of fun reviewing all these and, and and just seeing you know people people get really excited about world records and, and the biggest ever you know but. We got to witness some pretty cool stuff, you know, especially you know, in your world and bears. I mean, the certain states and whatnot showing up that we'd never seen before. Right. You know, and, and people get really hung up on rankings and numbers. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's gauging wildlife conservation successes and failures. And, uh, you know, a, a, an entry from a new county is is far more exciting to me than the biggest deer ever taken in Arkansas, for example, or something. Right. Um, just because of what we're trying to do and engage and, and new areas showing up means that wildlife conservation is working. Our success of right. North American model is, is and see, desired effect. That, what you're saying right there almost has to be, you have to build up to it, because I don't think most hunters understand what the record-keeping system was originally designed right. to do. Most people today view the records as just a way to gauge the size of an animal so that we can tell who's got the biggest one right basically but when i and, and let me let me give a little bit of personal history too i became an official measure in 2014 or something and so i came to missoula for the three-day class and that's where i met you and becca right. and that class for real impacted me in a deep way because I thought that we were going to go there to really learn the nitty-gritty or the the emphasis because we did learn the nitty-gritty of how to score the North American big game. But I felt like that was going to be like the emphasis, like accuracy, get this right. But really the emphasis was conservation and understanding the whole, the macro picture of what the Boone and Crockett Club is and what, what it's goals are and how the record keeping system is actually a biological database to show us where stuff is working where habitat is good because i don't want to steal your yeah no but, you're, but, you're doing great i'm just well <laughs> i mean it, i mean just to say it quickly where there are older mature males in a population that means that something is going right from a habitat from a hunting from a conservation perspective and so originally the founders of boone and crockett club their goal was to keep a biological record and the best way they could figure to do it was to say where are the the older mature males yeah. and but i want i want you to i want to hear well, it from you, you know, justin we'll start we'll start from the beginning um you know 1887 theodore roosevelt they are our founding days this was a time that wildlife was not it wasn't going to be around i mean right. the, the bison were nearly extinct um Roosevelt came out west looking for a bison and, and, and barely found any, and they were, you know, they're collecting for the, you know, National Museum. And so what what they did at the time and the original purpose of records was they wanted to gain get specimens to show our generations what once was in the North American they continent. They didn't think they were going to be here anymore. One hundred percent thought that that it was 
gone. I mean, they the passenger pigeon they'd seen at that time, they'd seen it nearly decimated. It was 1913, the last one died, something like that. Um, and they thought that that was the, the future of all wildlife. So uh, it was the Bronx Zoo, National Collection of Heads and Horns, was kind of our beginning. And they were looking for the largest specimen of every species, and it was actually the world at the time, um, to put on display so people could see what there once was. And um, that was 1905, I believe, is when that was opened. So the club started in 1887. 1887. Part of that was the Bronx Zoo, um, some early club members, Madison Grant, folks like that, that were were involved with the zoo that were trying to make this collection. And, you know, the original picture of the uh, the display says de- dedicated to the vanishing big game of the world. Wow. And that hung over the door when you walked into the national collection, which was supposed to house the best of what was once here. So that's where they started out. They were building the collection. But at the same time, we started with game game regulations. They they This idea of fair chase um, was something they promoted. And Which would have been a totally unheard of concept. Oh yeah! Like today, the the value of fair chase, whether anyone has ever heard of the Boone and Crockett Club or not, if you're a North American hunter, you live by whether consciously or unconsciously some ethic of fair chase inside of what you do. Right. I mean, most ninety nine point nine percent of people, and that came from. The Boone and Crockett Club in the late 1800s yep. that were coming from a market hunting mentality uh, or a zero conservation-based mentality of market hunting for the last 150 years on this continent from European mm-hmm. Europeans, basically. And then, so they introduced this idea of fair chase, introduced this idea of to give some quantifiable measurements to older mature males. Right. So that people would want to shoot a big old buck rather than shoot the doe or the juvenile or the small immature buck. I mean, they're the ones, and and that's completely separate from the ideas of fair chase. Yeah, but, I mean, they're the ones that introduced this stuff. Well, you know, it was it was different at the time. You know, Forest and Stream was the was the hunting magazine of the day, and there wasn't scientific journals. There was no field of wildlife management, um, and so. The exchange of of scientific ideas with wildlife with these naturalists took place in this in this forest and stream. George Bird Grinnell, who's probably the least known name, but every hunter should know. Um, Roosevelt was very good at getting up and giving speeches and, and getting the crowd fired up. Right. Grinnell was the was the brains of the conservation movement. Mm. He he and Roosevelt George Bird Grinnell worked very well together. But how this whole thing had started is, is Roosevelt had written an article about hunting that ran in the magazine or, or a book, excuse me, and Grinnell wrote a review of it, and it was not glowing. So TR was pretty mad, stomps down there, kicks down the door, goes in there and demands that, you know, Grinnell justify what he said. Well, this turns into the two of them finding out that they're both very passionate and seeing in each other what the conservation movement needed, and that is the beginning of Boone and Crockett, was that interaction. Mm. So in this beginning time, they, they've got this this national collection that they're trying to uh, build up for future generations, but they're also pushing the idea of fair chase. And the idea here was the hunting was an important part. It was 
the history, the, the, the rugged lifestyle that, that TR promoted. He wanted hunting to continue, but the practices of the day with market hunting and another thing that, that a lot of people don't realize, but when you read into it, is that they call them pot hunters or meat hunters. They okay. Nobody cared. It was just an unlimited resource. And so they brought in this idea of fair chase, of giving the animal a chance to escape. And it wasn't about quantity. It wasn't about filling the pot. It wasn't about feeding your family. It was going out and actively making it harder on yourself so that it wasn't guaranteed success. Yeah. And then concentrating your harvest on your older mature males that have no net effect on the population if they're there or not. Right. And so, I mean, trophy hunting's got a horrible name today. But the original idea was if you shoot these old mature males, the population can recover, and it did. It worked yeah. phenomenally. We had game laws. We had, uh, you know, the idea of, of never, I mean, you know, I mean, I wasn't born until the 80s, but it was still my dad and his hunting buddies. You don't shoot does. That's wrong. Well, that idea all came from right. this original fair chase, and it's still around. And today, we're not there. I mean, basically, this was... In the beginning, this was necessary. Folks started to buy in. 1930, um, Aldo Leupold, University of Wisconsin, wildlife management was born. And this was a time that fair chase kind of shifted gears. Um, in the beginning, it was required to maintain populations. Once you started getting state management, we now have wildlife managers that say, you can kill 10 does in a buck a year um, you know, whatever it may be, right. but fair chase is now, it's just the ethical, the way, the accepted way, the right way. If you're going to go out, you're going to hunt, you know, there's an ethic to it. It's not just killing. It's not indiscriminately killing. It's no unnecessary suffering. I mean, it's everything you can do to, to give the animal a fair chance, right. not, not guarantee success. Right. So, well, this is all happening. The national collection kind of falls out of fashion nobody really cares anymore because you can now go to yellowstone or you know these national parks and see these animals and so the collection falls to the wayside and the club had started to collect data but they're like well we don't need to do this anymore so in 1950 they redid the system and that's when they really said what are the traits of the most healthy animal they use bilateral symmetry left to right it's common throughout nature um they also looked at mass and they looked at time length. These oh, let me let me stop you right there and ask you a question about the about the transition that the club went through. So, are you saying that from 1887 to 1930, when Leopold started writing, that there was a massive shift in the hunting culture? Yep. So that 40 years, 40 plus, yeah, 43 years. I don't know. It would be give or take, but that's when something happened. How did how did these guys infiltrate that ethic into the hunting culture? Just through media? Yeah. I, I mean, mean, the media the, of the time, which the, would have been the, the newspapers magazine. and yep. magazines. Yep. And, you know, these, these prolific writers, um, you, you read back, and I'm, you know, looking at the old entries and, and whatnot, we get, we get them in, and you read these stories. And they, I mean, they shamed these people into feeling guilty if they were to take two moose instead of one in a lifetime. Uh, there's this really? Dahl DeWeese, who was a, oh, there's a museum in Colorado that has a bunch of his trophies, and he, he 
hunted Alaska extensively, um, kind of brought the attention to what became some of the refuges up there. Hmm. And, and he was writing of a, of a hunt on Tustamina Lake, which is a pretty awesome place on the peninsula up there. And, uh, he, he's in his writing, he's saying, you know, I know you're going to call me a game hog because I've already killed a good moose, but this was the largest moose. Well, it turned out to be the largest moose ever. It was a world record, mm. but he's justifying like shooting a second moose in his lifetime. Wow. And so somehow, and this was in the twenties, I believe. So somehow that, that became the, the, the trendy thing is to not be a game hog, to enjoy hunting, you know, yeah. to concentrate on it. And they they just swung popular opinion. Yeah. So it was it was pretty amazing. In the thirties is when it started. I mean, by the time we got to the fifties, you know, there was there was a war in there that kind of changed everything and puts a lot of stuff on hold. But once once nineteen fifty came, they they decided, okay, we 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 want to document the recovery of wildlife. And so to do that, we're going to create a scoring system that rewards the traits that are associated with the healthiest specimens. Right. No, knowing that the habitat that produced the healthiest specimens is the best habitat. So we can say, okay. So wherever there are Boone and Crockett, older mature right. males, we can say that something right is happening right. there in and terms it, of habitat. And you can't look at the records and say, oh, clearly there's a predation issue. But you can say, well, this county used to produce X number of entries every 10 years. We haven't seen one in 20. What changed? You could look at another county that... that went the other way and so you've got two points that you can say okay well something's something's going well here and not there and it's kind of a starting point so it doesn't right. answer all the questions but you know with 50, and that was the original yeah. intent that was the original intent of the records the, the yep that was that and, was why they decided to put effort into it right and what you just said right there we can jump into this just something that i think every hunter probably deals with at some point in their life the boone and crockett scoring system is so prevalent and has so deeply infiltrated every aspect of any anybody that hunts especially whitetails talks about the score of a deer and what they're talking about is the boone and crockett score of the deer i mean you know they say that's 140 inch whitetail that's 130 inch whitetail and people now are massively quick to dog a net score i think it's fascinating and I bet if we were to poll everybody that's listening to this podcast right now and say, how many of you know why there is such thing as a net score? And it's because what you, what you just said, bilateral bilateral symmetry typically means a healthy animal. Correct. Lack of symmetry indicates an unhealthy animal. And also, this would have been information that these guys had you know, a long time ago that yeah. – that, there's definitely some some traits that they probably rewarded. Certain categories, caribou for one, um, maybe aren't the science. The science doesn't necessarily agree, but you have that long of a system with one particular category. Right. With whitetail, it still does. You know, there there is some research that shows like split brow tines could be genetically inherited, but the majority of the time when you see those crazy abnormalities, some form of stressor, maybe it's bugs, maybe it's an injury from mm. a fence or a car. Um, you know, we, the, the net score and the gross score, you know, we bring that up. Everybody's like, Oh, give him credit for what he grew. Well, the system isn't trying to reward freak traits or these oddities. And that's right. the other thing. We have a typical category, not, not a perfect category. 
what does a white-tailed deer look like unpressured in a natural environment where everything is is in good numbers? And still to this day, it's it's a symmetrical, heavy, long-tined rack. You know, and that's what the system and gets that's credit exactly for. Exactly what is the typical white-tailed so, deer? The reason, and again, if you understand that the Boone and Crockett record was originally designed to be a biological record-keeping system that showed us where habitat was good and where it wasn't, where there were problems with conservation, where there wasn't, then you understand that when a deer has this massive lack of symmetry, that the records just from that philosophical idea would have to deduct from that so that that's the whole point of it and i think i I think if people knew that they would be not quite as uh judgy against the system (laughs) well (laughs) and i mean the the gross score people understand what that is now and it's useful that tells me if if i have a deer that that gross is 165 and nets 162 you tell me that number, I instantly know, oh, man, that's a that's very a, typical deer. That's, everything is great. It's a good typical. You know, whereas you have, oh, this deer grosses 201 and that's 160, you know that there's there's some craziness going on there, that yeah. there's a lot of inches of abnormality or, or deduction. Um, you know, the broken tines, we hear that a lot. I mean, that's generally a sign of a high population of, of males. That's, that's right. an overpopulation. That's a good point. So they're breaking tines so off. So you're... You're, that's not a natural thing. Yeah. Therefore, it becomes a deduction in the system because it's all about ranking the habitat and the health of the species. Right. It was never meant for a hunter to say, you know, I have number 75 whitetail in the book. I'm the 75th best hunter in the country. Right. That's not at all what the system was ever I think for. that would shock most people. Yeah. Like, it really would. Like, they, somebody that would have no context of what the rec- these record-keeping clubs do, they would think that's what this whole thing was about but when you understand that so much of who we are as hunters today came from the boone and crockett club it's pretty amazing and you know in, in the the boone and crockett club it was a lot of individual members back then too um that that's that's an important thing a lot of these guys this was their passion i mean they're prolific writers roosevelt clearly grinnell mm-hmm. Um, Boone and Crockett kind of joined them, but but it was those founders of conservation, you yeah. know, that that basically built what we have today. I mean, yeah. Pittman Robertson under FDR, all this stuff, Lacey Act, you know, the the big wildlife deal. Well, there's two Lacey Acts, the one that we all know. There was a previous one around Yellowstone National Park. I mean, there's these guys were absolute giants. Where would you know? I talk a lot about the North American model of wildlife conservation. Would that have been? I know that that you know that that would have spun from the ideology of the Boone and Crockett Club, but I mean, where where did that fit in? Where did where at some point in history did we say we have a North American model for wildlife conservation? And these, I think it's the is it the five five pillars or seven, seven. pillars? Yeah. So that actually that document was not produced until recent times. Okay. And, and that was never a a blueprint. Okay. For how to do it. What it was was, I believe um, Val Geist and another you know, prolific biologist sat down and said, "What did North America? What, do, what have we done? Do different, and what are the key components to the system we set up?" So you know, the North American model. Um, clearly, we all the idea of it, the you know, publicly owned wildlife. Can um, we can we th- hash them out? Do you know them? I mean, I know you do know them, but I if you were to, I, I couldn't list them for you. I bet we could list a lot of them. I bet Becca could list all of them. 
No, one of them would be one. Really, let's try. We don't. We don't have to get them all, but one of them would be publicly owned wildlife. So, like, like in Africa, if you own ten thousand acres, all the wildlife on that. It most I'm generalizing. I believe but, the words held in public trust in the in the seven sisters. Okay. So, but the idea is that in some places in the world, well, in a lot of the European countries, the wildlife is owned by people. So, if you own a thousand acres. The animals on that would be yours. Here, Roosevelt and these guys said, hey, wildlife is public. So even if you have deer on private land, it's owned. those deer are your neighbors just like they're yours. Mm-hmm. So there's this community value placed on them. So public trust of wildlife. Yep. Um, scientific management. Scientific-based management. So you're not, you're not managing things based upon emotions like we're seeing now. In yep. some places that are going totally against everything that has got us to this point, like what we're seeing in British Columbia with mm-hmm. with them banning the grizzly hunt, totally not based on scientific information. It's based on just emotional, we like bears and don't want to see hunters shoot them. Yep. Um, okay, so that's two. I, I, I've got one. I've got one. <laughs> uh, non-frivolous use of wildlife. Isn't that, a, isn't that one of them? Isn't that the way it's worded? Yeah, I don't know if that's the same as commercial. It's in the same yeah, pillar. Like, yeah, but no commercial value, which is very interesting at the time. Well, it, that may be a different one. I just remember non-frivolous use, which basically meant that if you shoot something, you eat it. Right. right. Or if you if you shoot a predator, there's purpose behind it. You know, right. we're, we've got too many mountain lions and not enough deer. We need to kill a mountain lion. You know, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to, hey, let's go kill 30 buffalo today and cut their tongues out. Right. Right. You know? Correct. And so, and that ethic is deeply implanted into every little boy and girl in the country that has a BB gun. You know, if you, <laughs> don't shoot it unless you're going to, you know, you got you to gotta eat it if you're going to shoot it. You know, uh, there's three. Colby, have you got them up? Oh, we got our, we got our man how here. How about the, how a wildlife doesn't have a value like a market value yep the commercialization that's what i was that was what i was talking about okay we we got him here okay in public trust wildlife belongs to the people and managed in trust for the people by the government agencies number two prohibition on commerce of dead wildlife it'll be illegal to sell the meat of any wild animal in north america so and that comes from a time when market hunters made a living Guys in Arkansas made a living being bear hunters, selling the oil, selling the meat. You know, can't well, I mean, do that you, anymore. You know that that's why a buck is called a buck, right? One dollar was the price of a deer. Right, 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 right. Yeah. 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 I thought you were going to say, so uh, an eel of bear oil was the tanned neck of a deer filled with bear oil. I know <laughs> I've read some literature back in, from the south at least. Oh, Colby, can you open that back up? Where... uh they would take the the hide of a deer, tan it, and make like a pouch, uh, you know, waterproof pouch. Mm-hmm. And how much bear oil would be an eel? E, I think it's E L L, maybe E L L, and it, that was a unit of measurement. Hmm. Okay, allocation of wildlife is by law. Laws developed by the people and enforced by government agencies will regulate the proper use of wildlife resources. So that would mean that we submit ourselves to the laws i came to montana and i can only kill one bear and i gotta pay for it and i gotta check it and today 
we took the bear. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> took the bear. Took the bear to uh, Missoula to have it checked in. For opportunity for all. Every citizen has the freedom to hunt and fish. I've got a story. We've got some friends that live in Wales, um, part of England. Um, and they watch some of our YouTube videos of us hunting. And to them, it's just like bizarre. Now, they like it. But to them, it's just like that we're just like the craziest people on the planet that we would go kill a bear. And this lady told me, she says, Clay, every time I see you shoot a bear, I go ahead and do it for me. I couldn't hear you. She says, I think who that's the king's bear. She literally says that her heart stops beating because she thinks that I just killed the king's bear. (laughs) And I'm like, no, ma'am. Pillar number four of the North American Mile of Wildlife Conservation is that opportunity for all. Every citizen has the freedom to hunt. And We're all what kings I, and queens. It's fantastic. We're yeah. so lucky. Yes, exactly. Now, when I was at the Boone and Crockett class, one of the things that that impacted me was uh, it seems so common because we, we've grown up with this idea that wildlife is in public trust and that we have the right to come and go hunt these animals, but... We were coming from Roosevelt and all these guys were coming from a system that said these animals belong to, I mean, literally like the king. I mean, back way down. That's part of the reason adventurers like to come to North America to hunt. There's a book that is my favorite book of all time. I can't disclose the title because we're going to do a podcast on it. Um, But uh, it was this German guy that came to Arkansas and hunted, and he was he hunted just like all those guys did back in the early 1800s. Pretty indiscriminate killing of stuff. But he came here to hunt and was just like a mountain man for seven years in Arkansas because he came from Europe where he couldn't do that. So he came here because he could. Um, man, I've got Colby's phone here, and I keep losing it. Okay, we're on number four. Okay, number five is non-frivolous use, which we already talked about. Number six is uh, international resources. Because wildlife and fish freely migrate across, across boundaries between states and provinces and countries, they are considered an international resource. So basically we've partnered with Canada and, and presumably Mexico mm-hmm. uh, with some of the migratory animals. And then number seven is managed by science, yep. which we've already talked about. So those are the seven those are the seven pillars right. that weren't formed by, you know, these guys, but basically their influence a hundred years later produced these things. Right. So pretty yeah, incredible. No, and like I said, it's, 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 it was new ideas and those guys framed it, but it wasn't written down as the North American model right. until far later, which, okay. which is important to remember because there's, I mean, there's, we're facing different challenges and, yeah. and, and some of these things have a different look to them. You know, commercial value of wildlife. Well, back then it was the meat. Now we have a value to shed antlers. Right. Right. This is a question that we need to look at and say, you know, are we again putting, putting unnecessary stress onto the species by giving it an economic value, which clearly it needs to have some economic value. So people take ownership in it and want to preserve it or conserve it, whatever. Um, 
but we we have to ask ourselves, you know, are all these exactly what we need to do now? You know, the international, um, it's an international resource. Well, that's, that's one discussion on the Endangered Species Act and potentially, you know, updating it. We just had caribou that they just trapped the last one in, in the lower 48 and took it back to Canada. Mm. There, There's issues there, which were, in our time, caribou that used to come into Montana and Idaho are now no longer here because of practices that were happening on both sides of the border. Mm. And so that we, we might need to look at that one a little closer and say, hey, we used to do this. Why are we not dealing with this, this Selkirk caribou herd the same way that, for example, the Migratory Bird Act, that was an early on thing, which is where mm. that came from. You know, the duck stamp, Ding Darling, right. another club member, the first duck stamp um, between Canada, the U.S. and, and, and uh, Mexico on the migratory birds. And so, like I said, we, we always caution people to not say that this is the written law. But okay. that that structures what you know the basic. Can you see any other that. places inside of that that that's an interesting point that there could be modern challenges that could. I mean, you mentioned two. Are, are there yeah. are there any others that you can think of? I mean, those are those are the two that right now are are front and center. You know, questions yeah. that we're that we're looking at, and you know, honestly, I mean, the, the caribou thing hit me deep. I, I just. Yeah. I guess I never thought that I'd be somewhere that would lose a big game species. Yeah. And and it and it happened. And and we we didn't say much and I don't know why. Um you know, but the scientific management's another big one that you know now the problem is 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 it seems like everybody's got the science that says what they want to say. Mm. And so that isn't necessarily a problem. We still want the best science driving our decisions. But how do we how do we define what the best science is? How do we make sure that right. we're not managing on emotion purely, yeah. which which is not not a solid way to ensure the future of wildlife. That's, that is probably the, I mean, from from my perspective, the biggest threat to at least predator predator management predator hunting is just this non scientific based. Um, legislation that people can mm-hmm. get through in basically referendum type governments right or, you know i mean wherever that there is a government set up where you can for wildlife related issues just get a bunch of people on a ballot to sign you know for to say we want to ban this type of hunting and then it goes to goes into their legislative systems and it's i mean like in Arkansas and in several, a lot of the states, non-referendum states is the way I've heard it described, are there's there's documentation in Arkansas where wildlife-related issues are not, are to be totally managed by the state. And is, that not, a, is that a commission or is that a... It's a commission. And, and, and people have problems with it, you know. I mean, people are like, well, the commission's this or the commission's that. And I say, man, I would rather be run by nine commissioners that are vetted at least in some way to care about wildlife and hunting than to be thrown to the masses who can be swayed by the millions and zillions of dollars put into propaganda against us by some of these big anti-hunting organizations. And that's what they do. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what the Humane Society of America does. That's what other groups do. They funnel money into places that they think they can win and they do these big campaigns in uh, 
in in places that they think they can sway people who don't have information yeah. and uh, or who have no background for it. I mean, it's an easy sell. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an easy sell well, to you- someone that's never seen a grizzly bear, never bear hunted, never seen a mountain lion to say, why would someone want to kill a mountain? I mean, you know, right. I'm, I'm preaching right. to the choir, but... That's a massive threat. I mean, I think it's the biggest well, threat that we have. And the, and the one thing that we always talk about with, with fair chase and ethics and hunting and, you know, we address certain things that a lot of times, oh, you know, why is Boone and Crockett splitting hunters? Why are you, why are you dividing hunters? Well, let's think about this in a numbers game. Hunters are, what, 6% of the country? If we're doing something that the rest of the country doesn't approve of it doesn't matter if every one of us agrees with it it's not gonna we're not gonna continue because we do not have the majority we'll never have the majority it's that 70 something percent of the country that is not a hunter but approves of hunting that we have to make sure everything we do meets their seal of approval so we can continue on and continue funding the wildlife we have to continue to keep it on the landscape as we see today I mean, the best numbers ever. We are living in the good old days of whitetail, of black bear, of all these species. This this is yeah. the most there's ever been. And it's not across the board. I mean, clearly bison obviously numbered far more. But if if we get so hung up on, well, I want to do it this way and this should be fine, and you don't look at the bigger picture, we're, we're that's far more damaging than, than having a, a civil discussion amongst hunters on a particular tactic on yeah. how that'll be viewed by... The non-hunting but approving public. What? What? You know, I've noticed the last several years, Boone and Crockett's uh, their social media approach and some of the things they're doing. And I mean, it seems to be a pretty big emphasis on what. Or let me ask you, what would you say Boone and Crockett's emphasis has been to the hunting community? If I could ask that, and I don't know if you can sum that up in a short. And I'm kind of alluding to what you just yeah. said that. That I mean, we've really tried to take a, a the, the the hunt fair chase campaign. This was something we did earlier. And Do you, is that designed more as much for? Are we marketing as much to non hunters about fair chase as we are to we, hunters? We'd love to, but let's be honest, we're good at talking to ourselves. And before we can take this to the general public, we as the hunting community have to be all under the same roof. Yeah. And so before we can take this forth and say. Here's what we are as hunters. Here's what we believe in. Here's why what we're doing is is the best pass forward for wildlife. We need to have all the hunters say like, "Hey, this is what we're doing. This is why it matters." Not, you know, not a, you know, well, the state law says I can do this, so therefore I can. And if you don't like it, too dang bad. Um, that's that's not going to get us anywhere. So yeah. we're trying to get hunters to understand what the bigger picture is, why it's important to be careful about what you post on social media. You know, not, I mean, respect the animal. I, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, there's people that say never put a, a, a kill shot on social media. Well, I don't agree. I mean, that the, if a well-taken trophy photo or a kill photo sums yeah. up, could be 20 days, my moose hunt, 20 days in one picture, sitting there on your knees, you're exhausted, you're looking at a moose, you're respecting it, you're in awe of its size. That one photo has power. Yeah. But that's a well-taken photo. That's not a deer hanging upside down on a chain hoist over a, a gut bucket. Yeah. You know, so think about this stuff. And that's what we're trying to do is get hunters together, you know, and that's what you're seeing on social media is, hey, let's think about what we're doing. We're, hunters aren't poachers. Poachers are more... The, 
Poachers see, are more of an enemy. I see a lot of homes. that on Boone and Crockett's social media feed. Mm-hmm. Is trying to make a clear distinction that poaching is not hunting. And I mean, to to hunters, that's a pretty clear thing. Right. But to people that don't know anything about hunting, uh, they they very well may have an idea that hunters are just a bunch of outlaws. Right. You know. But uh, no, that's super interesting stuff. Mm. Uh, Becca, Becca, you've been quiet over there. No, I love this conversation. I think it's great because so Boone and Crockett is a very small office, and it's a group of incredibly hardworking people that pretty much work behind the scenes. They're not getting, you know, their message isn't getting told as well as it maybe should be. Um, all the work they're doing for conservation, and uh, I think it's great. This is good stuff <laughs> to talk about. I'm glad it's getting out there. Yeah. Well, I just know for real when I came to Missoula for the the measuring class. I mean, like I came out of it. We actually brought our whole family up. We drove up from Arkansas, 2014. I think it was 2014. Drove up from Arkansas. We're here for three days. And when I left, I told my wife, I said, this is going to change my life. And not, not that, not being, not that being a scorer really changed my life. I mean, I enjoy scoring big game. I don't really score that much. I'm not in a hotbed of, of, big racks but you know i probably score five to seven animals a year yep and half of them don't make the book you know but the association with the club really it it helped me because it 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 gave it gave it gave me the narrative it gave me insight to things that i was already doing that i wouldn't have known why i mean you know like my dad uh you know, I mean, a lot of the things he instilled in me just as a young hunter about taking taking an ethical shot. I mean, my dad, my dad was a bow hunter. I always say he was bow hunting before it was cool back in the 1970s in Arkansas. He is, like, massively concerned with ethical shots long before people were, that was, like, mainstream, you know, like, and, uh, and you know, a lot of that, I think, comes from comes from these ethics put into just respect of wildlife this this is a this is a this is a treasure that we have access to this is a this is a shared resource i mean a lot of these ideas but uh but so i'm just saying the 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 class was influential how many classes a year do y'all do um we we usually do two to three yeah Uh, you know some some years we we have more interest you know than others from different agencies so we'll travel a little bit, but we generally do two classes a year in Missoula, and we're also working very closely with Pope and Young now. And okay. so both both these organizations use the same scoring system, and so we're working very hard with them to have a unified front. You know, yeah. all the majors train the same. And again, it's Pope and Young's purpose for records is is to promote bow hunting, and 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 originally it was it was set up to prove that archery was a was a viable method for harvest. Right, and so. The first, the founder of Pope and Young, Glenn St. Charles, was a member of Boone and Crockett, which our original rules said you had to have taken with a rifle three big game animals. Uh-huh. Well, Glenn St. Charles was the first club member that was accepted in that took those three animals with a bow. Okay. And so he asked the club, can we use the system to promote this with our record system? But it's the same scoring. The rules right, are right. you know, roughly the same. And so between the two that we do and Pope and Young usually does two, we're doing about four now a year. And so for those who wouldn't be familiar at all with the, with the scoring, 
organizations, you guys train measures, and these measures just go back to where they live, like I'm in northwest Arkansas, and people in my region can contact me to score animals for them. Yep. I mean, that's basically it. So you got people all over the country, and and I, I think it's pretty interesting. I've found that there's a lot of guys that being a Boone and Crockett measure is like a big part of like who they are. It's a big part of their identity. They love it. I mean, they, and, and, uh, and as I say that, I'm not saying that I don't love it, but I'm not like traveling around to score yeah. animals. There's guys that, who is the guy? There's a guy that comes to the Arkansas. There are people that love, and they will drive. I mean, they, yeah. that's just what they do. Yeah. And then, and they're passionate conservationists. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to go back to what you said about yo. I don't score much a year. I don't. That, that doesn't matter if you score one thing or five hundred things. I think the message, that unified message of conservation that BNC and Pope and Young measures are sending out there is what's important. And that's yeah. Really what's hey, about. because the director of records is sitting right in front of me. <laughs> everybody, everybody that I score an animal for gets an earful for me yep. about everything we're talking about. I'm serious. <laughs> I, I really do. I'm like, hey, did you know why we're doing this? Do you know why that we and people just eat it up? Well, they really know, do. And that's the success of Boone and Crockett. Our our staff in Missoula is 13. We have 1,400 measures. The reason that people know what fair chase is, the people that the reason that people you know want to get stuff scored and understand what be, is our measures, and we can't you know we can't thank you guys enough for everything that you do. And our success is purely off of the measures and, and the face they put forward. Yeah. And so it, it's in, I mean, the measures take great pride in it, but, but they are, I mean, again, they are, they are the Boone and Crockett records yeah. program. It's, it's not me sitting in Missoula, you know, answering a question on which tine is going to be the, the beam tip or which is the, you know, that yeah. it, it's the measures driving that message home, which is yeah. why we have the following and the, and the the name recognition we do. Yeah. And you know, the, the record keeping system, every time I score an animal, usually for the people I'm scoring for, it's a once in a lifetime thing. I got a guy drive last week, uh, had me score a bear and he drove three hours one way, came to my office. We scored the bear. He drove home. And for him, it was like, this was like a day. I mean, I could tell when he got to my office, like, and I have to remind myself. To me, it was just like, yeah, I'll score the bear, come to my office at such and such a time. But, man, when he came, I mean, it was like something I don't think he'll ever forget. I mean, he yeah. was on pins and needles. And, you know, I was scoring a bear, so it, it like didn't take very long, you know. But I was kind of stretching it out, you know, kind of talking with him and getting the story. Yeah, and don't don't say stretching it out. When no, you're not stretching about it out. <laughs> you know what I mean. Stretching. Right. The, stretching. <laughs> I'm out. We 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 uh, we. What how can we say it? We elongated the time that it took. Okay. Uh, okay. That's... I just you know took my time. You know. <laughs> anyway, but it was a bit. It was a big deal to him, and I I started that story. I can't remember exactly where I was going with it, but but. Uh, there it's it's a it's a really unique place and way to meet people and it's it's uh it's a, it's a lot of fun a lot of yeah. fun being a measure i enjoy it i enjoy it but we we uh yeah we've got a before we get off of the records though justin uh we've got a story that we got to get back to tell but before we do um 
can you uh is there anything else you'd like to say about Boone and Crockett? I, I, just for the people out here I you're guess. a young man justin you're like in your mid-30s <laughs> yeah. am i right yep so i mean justin's got an incredible job he t- he told earlier how he uh kind of the short version of how he ended up here but i mean you've got a really incredible job you were just in you were just down in springfield missouri yep we've got our 30th big game awards we were down at bass pro shop setting up a display it's open to the public yeah um it's at the end of every three-year period we uh, require the top five in every category to be sent in for panel verification. This is to make sure they were scored correctly. Um, and all those heads were panel judged two weeks ago. I kind of lost track of time. I was down there mm. for a while. But the the judges come in. It's two teams of two that they verify the scoring. Um, and then they go up on display for three months. And so literally it is the the greatest collection of modern trophies taken in the time of, you know, of this, plenty, this, the the, okay. the good old days. You, mm. you walk in there and you look at the elk display. In the last three years, there's, there's the bulls that were the top three years ago would not have even been invited this time. Wow. Because the elk had mm. such an amazing three years with the, with the water available. Um, you know, Montana had a great year a couple years ago. There was a 430-inch typical kill, the 436, I believe, non-typical. Wow. And these, those, both those bulls are there. Uh, there's, there's a bull from the San Carlos. There's some amazing Roosevelts from British Columbia. Um, you have the, though the, the largest sheep ever recorded. It was a picked-up head from Montana, hour and a half north of here on Wild uh, Horse Island. Yeah. A 216-inch bighorn is on display. Below it's a 208, a 205. Hmm. I mean, these these numbers are unheard of. And, and what was the biggest bear, Justin? Do you remember? Black bear? Black bear? 22s. Tw- 22. Where did it come from? Do you remember? Um, there is a, there's a Pennsylvania bear there. Um, I don't remember. I did not set up that part of the display. Okay. I, was, I was pulled into the sheep, which okay. I was not upset about. Um, but... It's, uh, there's the, the largest brown bear ever taken with a bow is on display there. Ah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a life-size mount. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. So this is at Bass Pro Shops this in Springfield, Springfield Missouri Bass for the next Pro. three months yep. until the, 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 uh. The banquet happens, uh, August one through three. Okay. If folks are interested in that, you can biggameawards.com. I'm going to do com. my darndest to be there. Yeah. With, with at least. Some of my family. Well, again, our OMs are the backbone of the program, and this is our one opportunity to try to get them there and do hey, stuff for them. So. I wear my Boone and Crockett belt buckle mm-hmm. like all the time. I'm serious. People, people at my church, when they see me wear the belt buckle, they're like, "Clay's got the buckle on," <laughs> and they all know what it's for. And all the guys, I'm serious, they come up to me and they say, "Clay, I wish I could wear a belt buckle that meant something like your belt buckle." Yep, I'm I'm serious. Like two weeks ago. My buddy came up and he was like, you know what's cool that you've got that belt buckle? Because, you know, yep. it's a Boone and Crockett belt buckle. You're a Boone and Crockett measure. Anybody can buy a buckle. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he was saying because I said, you should get a buckle. And he was like, nope. I I, I hadn't rode a bronc or hadn't got bucked off a bull or hadn't become an official measure. Conservation's a rodeo, man. <laughs> Conservation. 
Colby, that's the title of this podcast. <laughs> Conservation's a rodeo. I want to bring up one thing, too. That I'm, I'm an official measurer, too. I bugged Justin so much. He finally I didn't got know that, class. Becca. Oh, I bugged him, bugged him, bugged him. Finally got me a class. That's awesome. But um, I think it's so important that everyone knows that no matter if you have a 160-inch whitetail or you know world-record polar bear, that that is a really important data point. And to see it as a data point, and you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, I know you will, but you can, you can even enter stuff anonymously into the record. Uh, yeah, well, okay. potentially. Okay. But I mean, it's not, it's not all about, I mean, yes, it's very cool to have the hunter's name in the book, but it's not all, that's not what it's all about. It's nope. really important to have those data points. I mean, that is what yeah. wildlife managers use to gauge the health of our wildlife. You know, I mean, on her point, she's, she's exactly correct. Um, Iowa is a great example. The deer there are phenomenal. Iowa is the land of giants. People won't even put in 165, 170-inch deer if they have a 175 because they just think it's about their biggest deer getting in there. ranking, yeah. But when I'm looking at Iowa, you know, it, it is a true, true success story of what happens when you allow deer to get age. And so when it's got so good and we, that bottom part of that data set drops out, it's not as strong of a case. So when we are talking to an anti-hunter trying to make the case to somebody – of, of how hunting and, and, you know, the funding that it brings in and, and all the good it does for wildlife and the reason that there is deer in everybody's yard and, you know, we we can spot a black bear off of our deck. I mean, mm-hmm. that is that is because of hunting, and I need that data right. at my fingertips to show people right this is what we've done. Here's an example. Where are you from? Oh, you're from Iowa? Let me show you what the deer there used to be and what they are now because of this work. So everything, every right. single one is very important to us. And like I said, a 160 from a new county carries just as much, if not more weight than a 220 typical. Right. That, and see, that uh, that's good, really good information. And I, I think that people ought to put, see, there's a lot of people that have a negative stigma of the records and they're just like, ah, I'm not worried about records. I don't, I don't enter stuff. I mean, I, I hear that a lot. Oh, yeah. And I, I think people owe it to, owe it to the history of what's happened over the last hundred years to put a record book animal in the record book. I mean, just out of principle, it doesn't matter if you like the Boone and Crockett Club or not. Yep. You should put it in that. That and obviously, I'm, I'm kind of exaggerating to make a point because nobody just doesn't like. Something. Point being, I mean, I, I think, I think if you've got a, you've got an animal. It should be should be entered in. Well, and, and you know, we talked about the opportunity for all publicly held. You you were fortunate enough to take this deer, but it was everybody before you that that put in the work that made sure that yeah. the land wasn't wasn't completely stripped, that the wildlife was even there and was able to grow. And so your name next to it, yeah, that's that's admirable to say. I don't care if my name's in a book, but. You know that county and that date. There's so much that goes into that, that that everybody that got that there deserves to be recognized. And by you not not putting that into the data set, you're kind of disregarding their contribution to what gave you the opportunity right. to experience that today. Yeah. So that's awesome. Um, the, the I keep forgetting what we're calling it. The banquet. Is it the banquet? Thirtieth Big Game Awards. Thirtieth Big Game Awards. In early August. Yep. What so that so people if they came there they would be able to see all the see all the heads. Mm-hmm. But there's also an actual banquet and yep, meal if you have a ticket a, and there's speakers. Who's so speaking the, this year? Um, 
the Saturday, the Saturday night banquet is uh, Craig Boddington. Oh, okay, is him seeing that um, Friday night? We do. We started this four awards programs ago. Any youth hunter, sixteen or younger, that takes a qualifying trophy is asked to come, and it's displayed. Oh, yeah, and they're called up, and and it's not a you know we don't even we don't score them. I mean the scores are on there, but we do our best to say you know it's it's not about the biggest. This is about a young hunter having this opportunity getting us and trying to show them this whole conservation mission, but that's Friday night. Um, Oh, which has been like the best event. Yeah. It has been CJ, CJ buck, buck knives, third or fourth generation is the MC that evening. Um, Oh, Melissa Bachman. Um, she's the, she's the keynote that night. Mm. Um, and folks are welcome. And, you know, we, we encourage we encourage as many people as can come and, and show show those youth your appreciation, you know, and and, and, and their and how amazing this accomplishment is. And so we want to have just as many, if not more, people in the seats Friday night as Saturday night, which are the top heads. Yeah. Both events are amazing. But yeah, biggameawards.com. If you're anywhere near Springfield, it, it's it's literally the best of the best and the best time for wildlife. Yeah, I, bigger and bigger and more than ever. I mean, that's that's what we're kind of saying about this awards. Incredible, because every year it just gets better and better. The trophies, the top end specimens, trophies that are entered are higher quality. They're healthier. There's better habitat, and this is in the face of an expanding population. Yeah, you know, it's just amazing. Everything yeah. about it. Cool, very cool. Well. I'm going to do the best I can do to get there. And I, so that'll be fun. Well, didn't Becca tell you that was the stipulation for staying at the house and getting food as you had to come to the awards? Okay. I'll <laughs> tell, I'll tell that to my family. <laughs> might just might get another really cool buckle. I don't know. Just might Ooh, nice. I didn't even want to ask. Well, you know, as an official major, there's some other things coming, some, some, some unique items yes. as a thank you to you guys for all you wow. do for the club. That would be awesome. Whatever that would be. Um, okay. Switching gears just a little bit. You guys, we were just having dinner and you guys were telling me about your caribou hunt in Alaska, drop camp caribou hunt. Um, we, we don't have to go into the, I know you could talk for hours, but you guys both took incredible caribou. Was it last August? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Becca, the reason Becca's on this podcast is Becca is a very serious very good hunter. I mean, for real. And uh, I'm very lucky to have a pack mule in Justin as well. Yes, <laughs> we did learn that the only reason she married Justin is because he can carry big chunks of meat well, at that, one that time. Was, that was half of it. The other half was she thought switching her last name to mine might give her better draws. <laughs> because you're good at getting yeah, draws. I kept drawing Justin. tags, so she's like, "Well, if I switch my name, maybe I'll pull a tag." Yeah, and it, it, still waiting on that one, but that's okay. You have a lot of other good points. So, too. Becca, tell us give give me like a like a five minute version or longer sure. of of your your caribou hunt last yeah, fall. I just I honestly don't have enough adjectives to describe how awesome that hunt was. So we had planned this. You know, it took probably a year to plan, but uh, yeah, we just uh, did a fly out out of a drop camp out of Bettles. And it just with a couple other buddies, and it was just fantastic. Uh, you know, we just brought our own gear and just tried to do it as, you know, on our own as we could and got dropped on this fantastic little lake um, and uh, just started seeing caribou right away. And 
I had spotted, we, we used to Alaska, you can't hunt the day you fly in, right? And so we got our camp set up, whatever, have had dinner, and just having a fantastic time on the tundra. And I spotted a real giant bull on one of the surrounding mountains. And I'm like, wow, that's a beautiful bull, but he's not going to be there tomorrow morning when our tags are legal. Because it's the, it's, the, it's the caribou migration. Yes, and, and, and we're you, kind of the tail end. You're hitting hit the, the tail, end. tail end of the migration. Yeah, but I mean, those caribou just, for the most part, it seems like they just don't stand still. You know, they're just, just you moving. see one, and he's not going to be there, he or she is not going to be there in another hour. And so mm. I yeah, I spent, until at the last minute of daylight, I spent with, uh, you know, binoculars on that How far was he away? About it. Oh, he's probably a mile away. Really? Yeah, it was pretty, pretty good distance. And the tundra, that's a pretty oh, big chunk of ground. It's Yes. <laughs> the tundra will kick your butt every day of the week. It's incredible. It's, you can't describe what the tundra's like walking mm. on. It's just, it's an ankle Is it kind of like wet. walking up a Montana slope about <laughs> 70 degrees? Yeah. Just in a different way? Yeah. It's, it's, a, a, different, a, it's a different set of muscles. Horizontal stairmaster. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it was just constantly trying to break your ankles and uh, you're constantly falling in wet holes. And it's just, mm. yeah. It just, it's difficult, very difficult terrain. And you've got to cover a lot of country to get these caribou. But well, what she what she didn't say is is the other three of us. We knew we could start hunting first thing in the morning, and we'd oh, all gone to bed. All these suckers were in bed snoring. And, she, and she's like, nope, I'm going to keep glassing. <laughs> she's watching. And what was he doing? He was just kind of hanging was, out? He was feeding. Yeah, he was up on this. He was pretty, up pretty high on this mountain. He was uh, just kind of feeding around, just kind of staying. He was kind of staying in the same area. He was all by himself. And hmm. just I had told the guys before the trip, like, we were kind of talking about, like, hey, what kind of caribou are you guys look? What are you looking for in a caribou? And I was like, I'm looking for a double shovel. And Justin was like, oh, you're not going to get one then. Because, <laughs> you know, that's it's not a common I was, thing. I wasn't quite that blunt about it. It. I yeah. think I, I think I said, well, um, that's kind of the really. Yeah. So double shovel is well not normal enough that you even well, thought you'd see one. Well, so I mean the scoring system we talked about rewarding that. There's no deduction on on a single shovel because it's, so it's such pretty a normal common thing for them I to see. have a single underdeveloped shovel on one side. And and you know my joke was, well, what type of caribou are you looking for? Well, a like a caribou. I, I a just, caribou. We'd never been there. It was like I'd, I'd love to take a caribou, you know. And she's like, I'm really wanting a double shovel, and you don't, you know, you don't want your wife to be let down. And <laughs> I had to explain to her, like, well, we'll try, but uh, you know, don't don't hold your breath. And Tell then, us what a double shovel is. Uh, yeah, so caribou have these fantastic antlers that, so they have, uh, the first kind of, I guess you call it a G1 probably, comes kind of, throughout. it's a big flat bladed structure, um, if it's, you know, if it's an actual shovel, sometimes they'll just be a single point as well, okay. but so a double shovel would be, has these two big blades that come out, like their G1 is these two big blades, and they use those for, like, scraping around in the tundra, and then the, really? their next- Really? So they're thing, using those for feeding? Yeah, as actual feeding purpose, I believe. Right? I don't. I don't know. I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and then their G one is called the bez or the bay, and those are like kind of more big, curving. The uh, second time. The second, second size time. is a bez. Yeah. 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 Like. A, hey, I'm not even going to open my mouth about <laughs> yeah. scoring caribou. And they're more of a big curving kind of palmated <laughs> situation that's coming out. Uh, that kind of curves around the shovels. Yeah, and they just uh, yeah, but. Anyway, double shovel was just I. I've the caribou have the most inc- oh, of all the big game animals that we score. It's the most bizarre set of antlers that probably were ever created. I mean, they really are. Yeah, it's such are. such irregularity. I mean, like caribou, like you know, a ten point one hundred forty inch white tail rack is kind of standard. But I mean, like 
there are there there would be like a stereotypical caribou rack, but I mean, even there's just so much. Yeah, yeah there's so so much uniqueness to them. Every just every incredible. one of them, yeah, you know, looks looks completely different. And and she just pretty much found the best one on the tundra the first I night. Okay, anyway, so okay. I look so up on this hill, and it's there's this beautiful double shovel bull with a big old white man just. You know, but I, I and so was, you you watched him until dark until I though I had no more light left and I was like said, said I waved at him and said well it was nice seeing you did you literally <laughs> wave at him I literally did that is awesome <laughs> <laughs> because I, I can see you doing that <laughs> yep sayonara sucker you know yeah. I find I find that I salute things <laughs> like like if I'm like if I'm, I'll be by myself and like I'll be I'll like I'll be like for sure he deserved a salute too he was beautiful sitting up there yeah. <laughs> But then, so next morning, I, I get, you know, of course, we're all fired up, right? So I'm up for first thing, you know, and of course, it didn't really get all that dark. But anyway, up, I'm up, I don't know, and it's so light. Now, is there get, regulated shooting time during that time in Alaska? 3 a.m., I think, is what the requirement is. Okay. Um, there's no there's no shooting hours, but you can't use artificial light or anything. Yeah. And it never really got dark, dark. So you could see, just not great. I mean, you know. So, so technically, you could have... You could shoot an animal any time during a 24-hour period? Is that what you're saying? Unless my, regulations my leave it up But to your that. time period for the, fl- the float plan was three. You cannot fly. You, yeah. Unless you're on a commercially scheduled flight, you cannot hunt until 3 a.m. the following day. Got it. Understood. But beyond that, Understood. it's kind of up to hunter's choice, kind of. Like, if you think that you can see that animal safely, okay. you can shoot at it. That's why I love Alaska. <laughs> Many reasons to love Alaska. But so I get up in the morning, and I just, I honestly didn't even look up on the hill. I was like, he's gone. I'm just going to, I was focused on coffee. I'm going to get some coffee and breakfast going. So I went and our little tarp and, you know, got breakfast cranking. And then after things were kind of settled down there, I got out the, the, the binos, and this thing's coming down towards camp. He's hiking closer to camp mm. <laughs> i just mm. couldn't believe it like i yeah i couldn't believe it and so the the rule was whoever saw the caribou was able to claim it well i, I think that was kind of what we're going for yeah i think it was you, you know so there's four of you in camp shot it kind of thing yeah yeah and then so and it, well it kind of scared so we woke up to frost we woke up to a really cold morning we had all kind of been kind of cold throughout the night it was a little bit colder than we were anticipating so we we're all kind of huddling around coffee cups and having a breakfast burrito kind of thinking hmm I don't know if we quite dressed we, right we, for we this. We may not have brought enough clothes. <laughs> no, really. Yeah. What was the temperature? 18 or 19. Yeah. I mean, oh, it was, for real. It was yeah. everything was frozen, like yeah. it's cold. good and frozen, and yeah. we all had everything that we'd brought on expecting a little more mild temperatures. Oh, wow. And th- th- there, was, there was a look of panic in all of our eyes, a like, oh, seven days of this? We didn't... And it, it's the tundra. There's no trees. There's no firewood. Yeah. Like, you, you're... You're kind of stuck with what you have uh, and what you prepared wow. for. Yeah. So. So we yeah we kind of were sitting around having our breakfast and it became apparent that this caribou was going to just try to run us over in camp and uh, Justin and I decided we'd head towards that caribou and then our buddies they'd head the other way on the lake and you know see what was going on on the other side of the lake and yeah we took off after this and Justin was able gave me honors on it and uh, well though the, we kind of <laughs> the caribou kind of because he was walked right towards our lake and we kind of he kind of walked into the valley of doom there was no way he was getting out of there without a boom and. Uh, so Justin kind of went around one side, and I was able to sneak, keep getting ridges on him, getting ridges on him, and got right up in his grill. He came over this last ridge at you know about sixty yards, and I was I was able to his actually his <laughs> I was so excited. His head came over the ridge and his neck, and I didn't even wait. I just I just put one right in his neck. I was just too excited, <laughs> and he just dropped right there, and it was fantastic. Wow. And, 
Yeah, Justin, had, Justin, Justin had him covered on the back on the back end. If he would have, I mean, <laughs> if, if he would have even thought to, about going a different yeah. direction, he was not going to get away. But yeah, it was just too exciting. And then to have some camp meet already, it was just like to, to be able to have caribou tenderloin sitting on that lake in the tundra was just like I don't know, like the best thing ever, pretty much. Just, wow! So he was velvet. Full velvet. Full velvet, yeah, but uh, yeah. And Did you are you are you gonna get him mounted in full velvet? Yeah. What? Um, so since we killed him on the first day, it was kind of like, yeah, this you know, there's no, we're probably not gonna be able to preserve the velvet. Okay. Um, so I did end up stripping the velvet in camp, and it came off pretty easy. Like it was, yeah. it was apparent that he was probably gonna be stripping soon, and uh, so yeah, I stripped it all off, and then I'm actually getting the reproduction velvet. Okay. Put on it, and it's actually yeah. the mount will be done soon, and yeah. I'm wow, that'll be. It. That'll yeah. look incredible. So how how tall? Like if that if we had those horns in here right now, how tall would they be? I don't know. Are they four feet tall? Yeah, probably. Three yeah, three and a half tall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it we 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 got back and you know so for Boone and Crockett scoring, if you split the skull, if you saw the skull all the way through, it can't be officially measured. And so we got it back. And I I when I was younger was hunting with a buddy and he shot a deer poorly and the very first thing he did was pull out a tape measure and it really has bothered me to this day like no that's not what it's about as a tape measure so it was even hard for me to do it but i'm like we're gonna score it to make sure this isn't you know oh before you cut the before skull. we split the skull if this is boone and crockett or not oh. but it was it it was a 390 class caribou with the velvet just missed the book Wow. But it just an absolute giant. I mean, no, it didn't didn't quite make it. But there's nobody that doesn't shoot that bull first day. Oh wow! You know, even if you're killed numerous caribou, and again, I mean, it's not about a number. It's it, it'd be cool if it went. It didn't. But I mean, just beautiful, beautiful bull. Yeah, wow! Just bull of my dreams. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So he's gonna go right here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, when did you kill the little bull you killed, Justin? <laughs> So that was like day three, and after she I'm said, joking, she people. Said that, I've no, seen no, these pictures. It, it's a nice. Justin killed a big bull. <laughs> Justin killed a bull that I was kind of expecting. It's a, it's a nice caribou, a 300 inch, you know, just kind of average bull, right, bigger, bigger right. than what we saw. But that's what I was kind of thinking. We'd never done it on yeah. our own, just get dropped off. Yeah, like okay, we may have a little bit of knowledge of what a big caribou looks like, but beyond that, like we don't know how to hunt these things. And so it was day three, and we'd let a lot of bulls go on day two. Mm. And it was one of those things that I was thinking to myself, if I wait and try to outdo my wife, I'm going to go home with tag soup. Yeah. And so this bull happened to be coming towards camp, and it was a fairly entertaining. I We'd come back to camp for lunch. I don't remember why we were there, but we were all sitting around having a sandwich. And I decided to just wander out from the tent to a high point in glass, and this herd of like 10 caribou is just coming at a clip right over towards camp. So I turned to run back and like Becca said, the tundra is full of holes and whatnot and made it three or four steps. And then the top half got going faster than the bottom half. And I went <laughs> down in a heap and came up, you know, and they couldn't figure out what was happening. So they're watching you oh, run yeah, to they, camp. Yeah, they can't like, am I running? Becca from- says that when Justin runs, it's scary. I was concerned. <laughs> yes. It's always concerning because he's a big guy and he can run really fast and it, He's always like, I'm not, I don't know what I need to do. Do I need to run to? <laughs> <Do I should? laughs> what you should do when you see Justin Spring running is get him a rifle. Yes, and that's what I did. <laughs> and I grabbed his backpack and we went. <laughs> but I mean, her, her bull we stalked from camp. This one ended up coming pretty darn close. And I, a couple hundred yards, maybe two, three hundred yards yeah. where we set up and 
got a shot at them. Um, basically all four caribou, we, we hunted and hiked around and, and did all that, but all four of them ended up, you know, you could see from where we were camped where all four of these bulls ended up. That just sounds like a dream hunt. Oh, it was. You couldn't, you couldn't script a better hunt. Two now, how common would you say it would be for somebody to go up there and kind of do the same type thing you did for them to find that kind of success? I mean, maybe not a near Boone and Crockett caribou, but just like, and I'm asking this for like personal I, I would, reasons. I would, I would say if, if, if you have a good outfitter. They're going to put you where the caribou are. So or this was a this was service. a this was a drop. What, 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 it was what a we flying call? service. So they're, okay, they're, so they're it wasn't an outfitted hunt. No, they're a transporter. Service, yeah. So and there are services. A lot of people I wouldn't have known this yeah. six seven years ago that there are services in Alaska that you pay a small sum comparatively very comparatively small to sum. an outfitted hunt. Yeah, right. I mean basically you're paying for their their services to take you into. You know, you can do it with moose. You can do it with caribou. Um, so that's what you did. You right. used a transport service. They just dropped you off and said, hey, and we'll they, be back in seven days. There's very specific rules. I mean, they can't. They can't help you load your meat. They can't. They can't give you any direction. I mean, they're purely there for safety. You can call them. We you know, we were we were scheduled for seven days. You know, the North Slope. I mean, weather's an issue. The the day that we got the, the the guy killed the fourth bull, I you know I got back to we went and helped him pack, and Beck and I got back to camp, and there was planes flying, and so we we called the outfitter and or the the transporter and said, hey, you know we're killed out, we see a lot of your planes flying, can you uh, do you have an empty that you could take some meat back? They have a meat cooler, and I was you know the meat was dry, and we we took very good care of it, but. You're still worried. You don't go all the way up there, and you don't want to waste the caribou. So I was like, "Hey, can we get our meat out? Maybe we'll stay and fish or whatever." And they happen to have a an otter, which is De Havilland's biggest float plane that you can basically drive a truck onto and fly it out. And like, theirs happens to have a thousand horsepower upgrade, which is the most awesome plane ever. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's another one of Becca's things. She actually was was almost ready to solo to become a float plane pilot too when oh, she was for younger. Real? Yeah. Yeah, my wife's kind of an all-star. So anyway, but they said, yeah. And so within three hours of that caribou getting back to camp, we had everything broke down, thrown on the plane, and in five days we were flown back to battle. So it was... That's an incredible if, hunt. If you are if you just go up there and think that they're just going to wander up to you, you're going to be disappointed. Right. If you're in shape, if you're willing to hunt, you know... I mean, yeah, we got very lucky and, and got them very close to camp. Right. But the other guys we were with, they'd put on twenty miles on that tundra. Really? You know, and so you can't see. So it's rolling hills. So like, you move around and you can see new country. I mean, sometimes yeah. when I think of tundra, I think of being down in some big valley so, where. Well, we were in a valley, yeah. and, and we were we were one side of us was was the edge of a, of an area that we couldn't hunt. It's only open for locals. Um, and then we had a mountain range in front of us and behind us. And these these caribou when they migrate, it's not straight line. I mean, they're going this way, they're going that way, they're going up Taking the mountain, they're coming down the mountain, they're going back up the mountain. So you just, just got you got to go out and look for them, right? And and you know we could see a lot of country, and we ended up in a good spot. But you're not going to be you know middle aged and out of shape and be able to go up there and hunt hard for seven days and do what you have to do to kill a caribou. That being said, you can get lucky and you know just have a trip of a lifetime like we did. I mean. Saw two wolverines, a musk ox, seven grizzly bears. I mean, it was amazing, amazing. Mm. How big is the caribou? 400 pounds, 500 no, pounds? tiny. Smaller? Smaller. Really? Big mule deer. 
No way. Yep. Really? Yeah, they're not a big animal. Like th- 250, 300 pounds? They're very fluffy. Their hide is very thick. Um, <laughs> bug, just big old but, stink bug we, on my neck. I, it scared me. I wasn't sure if I should get him a rifle. Exactly. Justin, know, Justin right? just started swatting profusely in the air and paused after a question. <laughs> Beck and I both no didn't know what to do. No, we... we, we I, I, see, I... I would have thought a caribou would have weighed four or five hundred pounds. They were not. They were not. Large. So that's very, actually advantageous doable, for doable. for hauling out. For hauling out, I, I, we went, it's not like killing a moose. One, the one guy, the one that the the third third one we got, and the second biggest bull between mine and Becca's. Um, he'd shot across the river, and they had to do a river crossing, which was super sketchy. You know, mm. like very top of the hip waders. They were soaking wet. They'd been hiking all day, so we met them. And, you know, they were obviously tired, and so I just started putting the meat in my pack. I had the majority of that caribou in, and it was it was not that much, you know, bone. I mean, it wasn't boned out. You have to leave the meat on the bone, but I think I had three quarters in there and definitely could have taken more. It wow. wasn't like an elk or anything where, mm. you know, one quarter is going to be a full load. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a great story that, that shows what you guys love to do. I mean, we're sitting here, and we've got – moose and bear and uh mountain goats and i mean you guys are you guys are hunters so that's that's pretty cool that you guys as a couple went up there and did that not many not very few couples that i know would have done that and both people enjoyed it i don't know it's pretty similar to you and misty just coming up here like you've been up here a couple times now we just came and jumped in both feet first and just went for it you know i'm really impressed with that you know that's really like just went for it with very little information just went for yeah. it and, it was, and you worked hard and panned up I mean, yeah what she's referring to is in 20 did we decide it was 15 yes in 2015 my wife misty we drove up all the way from arkansas and on justin and becca's recommendation went back into an area and hunted for i think we only hunted for five days but we totally we left the truck we didn't come back for five days and uh to this day misty talks about that and now misty is not a big hunter i mean she she loves to go with me she loves to support me she loves eating wild game but you know she's not like let's go hunting but she wanted to come to montana on this hunt but there were just too many she runs a school and there was just so much going on uh and she's getting her phd too so she just couldn't couldn't swing it so i had to bring colby yeah colby's colby's a great guy and all but He's no Misty Newcomb. Right, right. <laughs> Colby. Colby doesn't have his microphone. He can't defend himself. If I could, you wait till the podcast when we talk about Colby. This guy, he's not fast, but he's tough as a brick. Mm-hmm. He really is. He wasn't prepared for this hunt at all. But uh, anyway, Misty and, I, Misty and I came up here and did this a couple years ago. And uh, so it was a lot of fun. And she would like to come back. She wants to come back. So, and when I tell her about the hospitality, I already have. If you talk to Misty right now, Becca, she would say every time I talk to her, I tell her what you fed us and what we. And we've been in the backcountry for, I think, four. We stayed here two nights, four of six. But we were kind of coming, coming and going, going to different areas, doing a few different things. But, uh, but anyway, super, super appreciate the hospitality for yeah. sure that's fantastic having you here and uh, yeah i hope you and misty come back yeah, yeah. 
So, like so, so, Becca, you're on a you're on a uh, bear hunting podcast. Yeah, and there's we, a story that you have about a bear that your husband loves to tell because it just shows how awesome you are. An angry sow in the middle of Oregon. Tell us the story. We can end on this. We've uh, we've uh, yeah we we got to hear the full story of this though. So, um, Justin is from the Oregon coast. When we got out of college, we went to met in college in Wisconsin. We went to find jobs on the Oregon coast because it seemed like a good idea. And he already had a job and I got a job with the. We, we both, we both have degrees in wildlife, yeah. biology, natural resources. She also has geoscience. So natural resource jobs is what we were looking okay. for. So yeah, and I got a job with a private consulting firm that was doing surveys for marbled merlets. And these are, if for people who don't know, they're these uh, kind of. I guess, locally endangered um, bur- seabirds that fly inland for some crazy reason to lay a single egg on an old growth tree in on the coastal ranges of Oregon. Mm. Well, I'll, actually, all up and down the coast. But they're semi, they're, I guess, locally endangered. I don't know, because their population is kind of suffering a little bit. But it's really in the very southern edge of the, edge of the range is why they're suffering. But anyway, these marbled merlets require a very unique survey technique. You need to hike into these stands of old growth timber in the dark, and then these birds fly in in the dark, and you hear them. They make this specific noise. They go here, 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 and they have these cir- like circling patterns because they can't really land because they're a seabird, and so they're doing these circles to try to land on this tree that they really they're like a flying potato. Mm. Picture a flying potato. They're mm. very they're, they struggle with life, and so these <laughs> birds. You know, but somehow they've managed <laughs> to live for. <laughs> they, yeah. They're doing fantastic up in Alaska, where they have much better habitat for what they do. Oh, okay. But okay. Um, so, but so anyway, to try to quantify what their population status is, you have people that are hiking into these timber stands in the middle of the night uh, or in the early morning hours and sitting there for two hours and waiting for these birds to to see if they show up or not and like quantify their behavior. So I had a stand or a station that was particularly nasty. It was down way down in the straw, um, about two miles from the truck. So I had to get get in there pretty early. It was pitch black. I got my headlamp on. I got a little flashlight, you know, and I got I had a trail. You flag in a trail, the, you know, the, a few days before, you know, with, you know, floor, reflective. You, reflective tape yep. so that you know, we know how you're going to get in there. And uh, so my lovely husband had just purchased me a Glock that he told me I should carry. But me being from northern Minnesota and having dealt with bears my whole life in Canada and stuff, I thought I was all tough and I don't need I don't need no stupid pistol. You know, I'm fine, right? I can handle <laughs> any bear that comes along. So I leave that in the truck because <laughs> that was a good idea and uh, hike down to my station. It's pitch black, right? I, so I get to my station. I'm, it's a pretty bad station. It's very brushy. Um, it's actually not – it was poor habitat. I um, wasn't anticipating seeing any merlets or hearing anything. So I get everything set up. You take weather, you take temperature, you kind of take some readings for the day. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was kind of getting all my stuff set up. And uh, it was a very calm morning. There was no wind. It was a very kind of oppressive morning. And uh, I I hear some soft pads. You know, it was immediately I could tell, like, by the sound. It wasn't an elk, it wasn't a deer. Like, this is this is something with soft pads kind of padding, mm-hmm. padding around me. And I hear it kind of go all, kind of go do like a semicircle around me, you know, and I'm just thinking, well, I'm pretty sure this is a bear. So I start making noise and be obnoxious. And I decide that, well, I don't know, I'm going to get on, I got on my leather gloves and I had a little two inch pocket knife. I got that out and I got my little, got my little mag light flashlight. Mini mag. Mini mag. Got my little (laughs) mini mini mag. And uh, I'm trying to be obnoxious and, uh, you know. You got the light turned on. Yeah. I got my headlamp and I got my little mini mag. So I'm trying to be obnoxious. I got no trees to climb. I'm in this brush patch that's just like literally I, I can't even stick my arms out without just hitting brush. I'm just in brush. Mm. And, 
uh, it kind of then, so I'm making lots of noise, and all of a sudden I hear this sounds like something climbing a tree. A couple mm. things climbing a tree. And I hear these soft pads continue to kind of do a whole circle around me. You know, I can hear it all the way around me. And all of a sudden, and the brush is shaking right in front of me. And I'm just, mm. I'm screaming, throwing stuff, you know. And, uh, I, but I don't see what it is. It, you know, it, I hear it back off and then does a, another complete circle around me. And then it comes at me again. I can hear it chase it's coming at it again. And this time the bear's head pops out of the brush right in front of me. And I am just screaming bloody murder. And I take my mag light and I just smack that thing right on the bridge of the nose. <laughs> <laughs> that mag light, both, like full hammer fist, like boom, right on wow. the bridge, bridge of its nose. And it didn't like that. It backed off. And then it, it went back to the, the tree, I assume. And I hear I'm pretty sure it's two cubs coming down to the tree. And I hear them all run off. But wow! Yeah, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. so you, Becca Spring, pounded a sow bear in the face with a mini mag light. I do have to qualify though. These Oregon coast bears can be very tiny, and it was not a big sow. I had to. It was of, a bear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did have wow. to kind of bend over to hammer fist it on what, the nose. Becca, what kind of vocalizations was that bear doing? Was it growling oh, it was or pop, popping? It was popping his teeth, absolutely popping his teeth. I mean, yeah. it was lunging at. I mean, if it yeah. was within arm's reach of you, it wasn't just like. No, bluffing. it was popping his teeth the whole way. And, and I, like, it just, it totally, I, I, it kept, you know, circled me. It just couldn't catch my wind. It had no idea what it was, what really? I was. You know, I think, I think Why that's Why couldn't it, it catch your wind if it was, I mean, maybe the. It was so oppressive. I don't, I don't know. You know, I guess I, I don't know. Thermals maybe, were going up or maybe something. Maybe this is my assumption. So yeah. it just didn't know what it you were. Been, thermals would have been going up. I mean, it was morning. But, but you're yelling I, at it, screaming yeah, at it. Yeah, picking up brush, whatever I could grab to kind of throw and, you know, just be totally obnoxious. But and, and this, That's yeah. crazy, man. There is she was working in is a state forest, but there areas that yeah. are unaccessible and there's there's a lot of bears there very high density of bears yeah and there's bears that have never seen a person i mean i've had experiences never anything close to that but a bear <laughs> doesn't know what you are man you know, and they're curious and and but that's that's my favorite story and people are like well you know tell me about your wife i'm terrified of her she'll punch <laughs> a charging bear i mean okay now <laughs> what you said before though was that you had a knife in one hand this, and a mag light and you chose the mag light well i had this pathetic for whatever reason i i don't know how to knife fight i had this <laughs> <laughs> i had this, this little switch like a little switch blade in well not well, like what do you call it a folding folding knife a little teeny two inch blade i had put that in my left hand yeah. for some reason i had this mag light in my right hand i'm right hand dominant i don't know okay no, I think it makes sense. I think like blunt force trauma, like in that moment, might be better than like having to have like a strategic stab. I mean, I kind of get it. That's incredible. I, there's very, very few people in all the bear hunting circles that I run in. I mean, very few people are actually attacked by a bear. Or, or would get yeah. in, 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 and I mean, I would. I don't know I would, if that was an attack. It was. <laughs> I would quantify that as an attack if you were within arm's reach and had to punch it. I mean, that didn't like I don't get you on else. the ground and try to eat you. But no, I could I could have taken it. It was yeah, like I said, not a very big sow, but you know, I had several years ago in Arkansas, we were we were baiting bears, and I had about a hundred and twenty five pound bear that came up to the bait while we were there and kind of ran us off the bait. And I had my, at the time, my like probably eight-year-old, six, seven or eight-year-old son with me. And this bear is just like right here. And I can't remember how it exactly went down, but I think I said, hey, watch this, son. And I I start like trying to see how close I can get to this bear. And uh, 
I get about like five or six yards from it. And all of a sudden, I jumped back, and, and I had the same thought as you, Becca. I was like, I could take this bear, <laughs> and 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 then I get about five or six yards from it, and I immediately jump back to my coon hunting past of how a fifteen pound raccoon is the most vicious critter on the planet. And will eat your lunch. And I was like, all, there was like this equation. And I was like, oh, this is a 125 pound raccoon. Mm-hmm. And it like all of a sudden, like, I was just like, respect. And I turned around and went back. And I was just like, son, don't mess with bears. Well, you know, I do have to say that video of, of your bear, Saskatchewan, I believe, the one that came yeah. out. I mean, Becca was watching that and she screamed, punch it. Punch it. Yeah. <laughs> Where's your mag light? Where's still, your I, mini mag light? I still have that mag light. That's good luck, man. <laughs> oh, oh, man. So it works, too. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having us on here, Clay. Heck, my pleasure. You know, I, I wish we had more time. We would, like, we because there's a hundred things we could talk about. We could do a whole other podcast, but it, closing thoughts, both of you, uh, either on records or on whatever. I'm just super thrilled for you. I'm just excited for you. I'm glad that you came out here again. I'm glad you guys had a great time. And I'm just yeah. totally excited. Well, this is, yeah, I, we're excited too. We're going, we're going home heavy. Nice. Going home heavy back to Arkansas tomorrow. Thank you guys. Yep. And, uh, Keep the wild places wild, because that's where the bears live. Nice. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of land.com it is where the adventure begins hey we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries now if you're like me enjoying the great outdoors you need gear that is as reliable as it gets that's why i power my adventures with interstate batteries i use interstate batteries in my boats i use interstate batteries in my camper great for your truck too from alaska to montana They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.